I love that song because it brings back some memories. The church I was saved in in college, we closed every service with that song. Holding hands across the entire congregation. It was a wonderful memory. But I hope you have your Bibles with you. I would love for you to turn to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. Only two verses today, but I think I can make a 30-minute sermon out of that. Uh, there's lots here, really. We're going to talk about living out eternal ethics, ethics that are based on our eternal life in Jesus Christ. The last few weeks I've talked about ministry to widows and selecting elders and also kind of the ministry structure of a church, how we should live inside the walls of the church necessarily, how should we, we behave. Well, this is going to begin to get a little meddling in your life, okay? Because this is going to talk about work and where you work and how you behave at work. So I know some of you are retired, and I'm going to address that as well. But uh, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing to think about. But let me read these two verses to you, and then we'll, uh, we'll talk about it. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. All who un are under the yoke of s as slaves should regard their own masters as worthy of all respect, so that God's name and his teaching will not be blasphemed. Let those who have believing masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brothers, but serve them even better, since those who benefit from their service are believers and dearly loved. Let's pray. Father, it's, uh, it's an awesome thought to know that because of our new life in Christ, we are to live and behave differently. Because our focus is different. Our circumstances around us don't impact our eternal life. The situations we find ourselves in are free from that worry and are being too concerned about them because we trust you. So, Father, I pray you'll help us this morning as we look at ethics, how we behave in the society around us because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. So I'm going to kind of start off a little differently in, in, in talking about these verses. I need to remind all of us, we all need to be reminded of who we are in Christ. See, there's a new identity that you receive once you become a believer in Jesus Christ. And as that believer, you're given a new persona. Okay? You're to live out life differently. Completely differently, usually, than the way you were living, especially if you were an adult and then you become a Christian as an adult. And so the book of Ephesians, I'm not going to go there necessarily, but it tells us a lot of things about our new identity. There's plenty of verses in Scripture, uh, in the New Testament especially, about what happens to us when we become believers. But the book of Ephesians gives us a, a, a nice, clear laundry list of what's going on because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to read a, f a few of them. It's a pretty exhaustive list, but I want you to understand who you are, what you have, what's happened in your soul and in your life, in your nature. You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. You have been chosen before the foundation of the world. You are holy and blameless. You have been predestined and adopted in love. You have obtained an inheritance in heaven. You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Have been made spiritually alive together with Christ. You have been seated in Christ in heavenly places. You have been saved by God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. You have been brought 
near to God by the blood of Christ. And Christ himself is your peace. You have access to God through Christ. You are no longer a stranger, an alien, but a fellow citizen with the saints and a member of God's household. You are a fellow heir and a fellow member of the body of Christ and a fellow partaker of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So because of that, you should live this way. The Bible tells you you can live this way. You will walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. You will use your spiritual gifts in the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. You will no longer walk as the lost walk in the futility of their mind. You will lay aside the old self and put on the new self through the renewing of your mind. And that's just one book of the Bible. One book of the New Testament tells us who we are in Christ. And those are points to rejoice in, to celebrate, and to let infest your life in a sense, infect your life where you behave differently. So because we're a new creation in Christ, we can approach typical life situations with a liberated perspective. We can look at things differently. We do not need to act as the world does. We don't need to fight with them like they do. We don't need to seek the same priorities that they seek because we are blood-bought sinners. We are saints in the, in, the, in the kingdom of God. And we don't need to act this way, and that includes your job, your work. And so we're going to talk about that. But Paul's already addressed this to the Ephesians before about how slaves and masters should interact in the church. In Ephesians chapter 6, and I'm, I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but you can write it down if you want to read it later. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, Paul says this, Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And masters, masters, treat your slaves the same way without threatening them because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. So we have an, an idea of how Paul was expecting the Ephesian church to act and now writing to Timothy, who is the pastor of the first church of Ephesus. Ephesus, it's easy for me to say. Not so much. <clears throat> Our salvation means we live differently, that we're meant to be living with an eternal perspective, looking only at our Savior. That's what Paul tells them. Paul gives the church a lesson on how their faith in Christ impacts their work ethic because of their new identity. And so he also, God gives us a new identity so we can work and live in a way that glorifies God. So that's kind of what we're going to talk about. That's the introduction there. How does our new life in Christ impact our work and our life ethics? How do we live our life? What moral compass do we have in our life and how does it drive us? Well, our, our new creation lives and helps us testify and love our masters, regardless of whatever circumstance you may find yourself in. So first of all, Paul says you're witnessing by your work. You're witnessing by your work. Verse 1. Verse 1. All who are under the yoke as slaves should regard their own masters as worthy of all respect. 
so that God's name and his teaching will not be blasphemed. So I know first I've got to talk about the issue of slavery <laughs> because it's a big deal. Now, slavery in the first century wasn't exactly like what we think of in the 19th century, the, in, the, in the 18th century, and all that went on before. It's not the same. It is in some, in some cases it might be. Well, let me explain it first. There's different types of slavery. First, there's the debtor slavery. The, way, the person owed someone some money, and so instead of, since they didn't have the money to pay it back, they worked it off. So they were under a contractual obligation to work for this person for X number of years to pay back a debt. That's one type of slavery. So you were, you were bound. Not like we sometimes say, well, I promise to do something, and then we don't do it. This was, this was something that they could be thrown into debtor's prison if they did not, them and their whole family, by the way, could be thrown into debtor's prison until they could pay it back, which is no way to earn money in debtor's prison. So they saw a better way was to obligate themselves to the person they owed money to. That's one type. And then there's the indentured servant, the person who just has obligated themselves to work for this master for, in exchange for food and provisions and shelter. And then there's the contractual, where you just didn't have any other vocation you could go to, so you, you contracted with someone to work for them for, for wage as well as for provisions. It could be both. It could be one or the other. And then there were some that were bought or conquered, is more like it, for forced labor, which is kind of what we're more used to, that forced labor and, and treat them as a conquered enemy. And so that did happen. I'm not saying it didn't. But we need to kind of get of our mind a little bit the, the African-American slavery that we all kind of know the Civil War was about. And Wil, Wil, Wilbur, William Wilberforce in England got the prohibition against. So we wonder sometimes, and we've been asked, I've been asked, why is there no clear prohibition in Scripture against slavery? But there is. Um, if you want these verses, 1 Corinthians 7, 21 through 24, and Philemon, the little book, one chapter book, Philemon, chapter, uh, verses 8 through 16. That's the, that's the scriptures. They're in there. But Christianity is more about relationships than it is about social standings and stuff, social ethics necessarily. It's more about how we're relating to other, and that's where Paul's addressing here. How are the master and the slave relating to each other in terms of being a Christian? Now, one thing you need to understand about slavery in the first century, the economy in its entirety lived on the fact of slavery. If, if, if a slave owner gave up his slaves, both the slaves and the owner could wind up in poverty because that's how much they depended on it. That's how much it, it kind of kept the, the wheels. And I know plantation owners use that same excuse, but they use that excuse to abuse their slaves more than anything else, to not treat them well. But in the economy of that time, slaves were an, a necessary evil in a sense. It was built that way. And and in light of the church being a new religion, if you want to call it that, if they had made a big stand against slavery and made it their number one priority, the government would have wiped them out. The soldiers would have come in and just destroyed them. Abolition of, of slavery would have hindered the gospel spreading because the gospel was more important than necessarily standing up against injustices. They would have been charged with insurrection, citing and starting a, re a rebellion of some sort. So Paul and, and the church in the Bible that you see, they didn't necessarily vocalize a lot against it. I'm sure they fought against it in, 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 when they're in and where they could without highlighting their church. But 
That's not really why we're here this morning, and that's not really what Paul's trying to get at here. Paul speaks not really about slavery as the social ill that it is, but how believing slaves should behave, and they should be respectful. They should be respectful. Work for the masters with all their diligence. Give them the full day's work for a full day's wage, in a sense. And they should do it not with a focus on the master, but a focus on the master, God. That's what's supposed to drive their work motive and their work ethic. They need to work with a higher integrity. And that, that's what our faith calls us to do, to work with a higher level of integrity, to work with a little more dedication to what we do, our trade. By the blood of Christ, a slave no longer needs to seek his own benefit, but that of others. That's what we're called to do. Paul told the Philippians to, to count others more significant than yourself, to look to the interests of others over yourself. And he told them that. Why? Because of how Christ emptied himself for us. Emptied himself for others, did not claim any rights or privileges as the Son of God. Go to Philippians 2 if you want to read how that all plays out. But the salvation of these slaves, it made them heirs with Christ, like I mentioned a while ago in the list of things we are. We are heirs with Christ. So they can look at their earthly state differently. And they should look at their earthly state, their earthly conditions, differently. Living as slaves this way impacted souls for Christ. They were testifying about the change that came through Jesus Christ by the way they lived and worked for their masters. They showed their master a selfless work ethic. That's what they would do by behaving the way Paul's talking about. The slave owner's response to Christ will be impacted by poor or good work habits. And he will either praise God or, or praise their God in a sense, or he will blaspheme God. And that's what Paul is, is not wanting to happen. He doesn't want the church to be in a situation where they're, they're leading people and convincing people to blaspheme God's church and God's gospel. We need to work, they need to work in such a way that they testify to the changes that was brought about by Christ. So if your soul has been changed, it means you have a change in your ethics. I mean, that's basically it. Soul change equals ethics change. We need to remember that. And their work ethic, their attitude would make a kingdom impact testifying to God's grace. See, they're living free of whatever the world's trying to condition them with. And it testifies strongly to the grace of God. This is amazing grace, as we just sang. Paul, Paul kind of is applying some other verses in Scripture to this slavery situation. Hear what the word of the Lord says. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. You've all heard it quoted. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And that means doing a good job for your master as a slave. It doesn't, it doesn't have only spots of the application. It applies to all of your life. And then that came out of the fact of what Jesus told us in Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, our actions speak louder sometimes than our words. We need to use words, but we also need to act right. And our ultimate purpose is to bring glory to God as a believer in Christ because he saved our souls. 
That's the ultimate purpose. So ask yourself this, this question, you know, what will you have at the end of your career? What will it be? A pension? A job well done? A gold watch? I mean, all those things, we, will there be some eternal value when you get done with your career? We're going to talk about being content with what we have next week. That's in next week's sermon. But I'm not going to get into that now. But, but we ask this question, why am I working? Am I working for income or am I working for God? Am I working and having a work ethic that shows that I have eternal life? That I show the world that, you know, okay, I'll take that. I got a few assignments in the military I didn't like. Sometimes I had to go home and bite my tongue over it. But we have eternal life, and so these things don't affect our eternal destiny. That may be hard, it won't be easy, but there's always grace to cover us when we don't do it exactly right. So now, how is your work ethic? Do you see your, your job as a vocation only or as a calling from God? I would tell you that everybody's vocation, no matter what you're doing, janitor, street sweeper, school bus driver, whatever, you need to think about it as a calling from God if you're a born-again believer. You need to think about it as, I am doing this for the sake of Jesus Christ and him alone. I want you to think about the fact that here, here, we want our culture. I mean, this is something I hear all the time from Christians. We want our culture to obey God's moral laws. We want our culture to follow Christ Jesus' gospel. We want that. We all pray for that. We want our culture to live righteously, to make good choices, to not be fostering sin. But many of them out there reject Jesus Christ because they've seen a poor example of Jesus Christ in the way we behave, in the way we treat things. Many reject church for the same reason. They've seen poor ethics. They've seen us cheat and cut corners. Some of us because we just never have thought or been taught that our salvation applies to everything in our life. So how we behave at work how we perform our job, how we execute our vocation speaks volumes to the world. And after already having one career, I can testify that it has. Not always. I wasn't perfect at it, but it does. Even if they mistreat you at your job, what does Jesus say? Turn the other cheek. Turn the other cheek. You can leave the job. Now, I'm wondering, and I need you, you need to ask this question in your own heart, what have you told your boss by your actions? What have you told your fellow co-workers by your behavior? Have you told them about Jesus by your work ethic? Do they know that you're a follower of Christ by the, the diligence you place in your job? Now, I know some of us are sitting there, because I did this week as I, as I read this and prepared. We're sitting there justifying or rationalizing, well, you just don't know my boss. You just don't know who I work for. I worked for a lady one time that called herself the dragon lady and embraced it. So I've been there. I've been there. Don't justify, don't rationalize because you've had a difficult boss or a difficult job, okay? That's, that's taking the easy way out. Jesus has changed you. So live like you've been changed. Paul's talking to slaves here. Okay? He's talking to slaves. None of us in here have ever been slaves. I can assure you of that. 
None of us have ever been, we may have felt like a slave, but we're not slaves. None of us have ever been slaves. We could all leave whatever job we had if we wanted to. If it got too bad. Slaves can't. They're stuck. Live like you've been born again. That's what Paul's telling them to do. Now here's a remedy for you if you haven't done very well. Do you need to go apologize for your work ethic? Do you need to ask for forgiveness from your boss or maybe even your fellow employees? Do you need to confess to them that I just haven't lived my Christian life out in my work ethic? I, haven't, I have cheated. I have not given a full day's work for a full day's wage. I worked one time at a plant and Every afternoon we got off at three and people would start collecting at the, at the time card where you, or the clock where you punched your time clock about 2.30. And I always thought that was kind of weird. And, but I did it because, oh, I'm not going to stand out, you know. I'm not going to follow the crowd. Are you not giving, did you, do you need to go confess that to somebody? Do you need to apologize? Because you need to remember right here, right now, you need to remember Christ saved you and gave you a new life. It doesn't cost you anything to apologize because Jesus has already forgiven you. It calls you to, to do the best you can do in all situations. And so you, you, can, you can go apologize. It doesn't hurt you. Our work ethic in Christ has eternal value. It has eternal value. Whatever you're doing, it has eternal value. So go and do better. Because it'll make a difference. Now, if you're retired, and I know I'm speaking to a majority in here, if you are retired, you can still make an impact now. If you need to go make it right with a former employer or some fellow employees, you may need to tell them, I didn't do, I didn't do what I was supposed to do. I didn't do the best I could. See, we lose nothing in Christ when we admit we were wrong. Everybody's wrong at some point in their life. We lose nothing when we ask for forgiveness from another human being. As a matter of fact, one of the best witness tools you'll ever use in your life is asking for forgiveness. Asking an unbeliever for forgiveness. They won't understand it because they would never do it. They would only ask forgiveness if they got caught most of the time. They would only apologize if they got caught. Because it's only wrong if you get caught, right? That's the world's philosophy. That's not a Christian's philosophy. Our best way to witness is admitting we were wrong. Openly, honestly, straightforwardly. We lose treasure in heaven when we don't do this right. We do. When we fail to live like Christ with a redeemed attitude, we lose treasure in heaven. Your work ethic testifies loudly about your Savior. So we need to make sure it's a good testimony. There are plenty of books out there that can help you work through this as a believer in Christ and how you work. Because God cares about your job. He puts you there for a reason. I believe that. And our faith, now it testifies in our job to that lost boss. That's Paul's point to them. But also, the next point is that our faith now can love our believing boss. Our believing slave owner. Look at verse 2. Let those who have believing masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brothers, but serve them even better, 
since those who benefit from their service are believers and dearly loved. Love with your work. Love your job and love with your work. I know it's hard. I know that's, a, that's a, sometimes a big mountain to climb. So Christian slave owners. He's talking to Christian slave owners in this church. Boy, does that sound like an oxymoron to you? But it happened many times because of the importance it was to the economy. But realize that anybody can be saved. Slave owners, anybody can be saved. So slave owners were getting saved, but they couldn't give up their slaves right then. And they provided a benefit to these other believers. So if you're owned by a Christian, then work like a Christian. That's what Paul's telling them. If you're owned by a Christian, work like a Christian because of you both are united in Christ. See, that's one thing. You both have the same identity that I read off a while ago. The same privileges that we have in Christ, both of you have. You're united in Christ. Don't be respectful to a brother or expect preferential treatment, he's telling them. That's abuse, not love. When you abuse the master because he's a Christian. Do not be disrespectful. Serve them even better than everyone else. Serve them even better. As a slave, be a better slave, even better than everyone else. Outdo everyone else's service. Because love for brothers as employer and employee, love conquers all the barriers. And, and the church life is improved by that, believe it or not. How could that happen? Because they're both benefiting each other. Both are benefiting each other. The slave owner provides the slave some opportunity to earn and, and take care of his family, and the slave provides the slave owner with the monies to do that, the work to do that. It's a benefit. It's a it's mutual benefit. Not the best ideal situation. I'm not going to say it's that. Matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul tells him, if you can get out of your slavery situation, do so. But don't do it illegally. Don't do it wrongly. Each brother is obligated to love the others in all aspects, including their job. The benefit goes both ways. And God's children should look like God's children in whatever situation you find yourself in. Because this will also witness to the lost owners and the lost slaves. I mean, Paul's thinking of the big picture here, eternity. Romans 5.8. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That love flows now out of you as a believer in Christ. It should flow to everyone, each, each other, everyone you're in contact with. God redeems even slavery to display the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there needs to be love between the owners and the slaves. And I know that it sounds like a paradox. It's like, how could you own, love your slave owner? Well, that's the beauty of Christianity. It's always unexpected. It always perplexes us because it's all of love. Obviously, potential divisive issue like slavery in the church was diffused by love. Paul took care of it by explaining it this way. Love covers a multitude of sins and it made unity possible and unity in the faith and the bond of peace requires knowing that Christ's salvation means what it means to all aspects of your life. Paul's trying to educate them here that you have a citizenship in heaven. You have a, a father in heaven and a, and a brother in Jesus Christ in heaven. That's where you're headed. Your job doesn't affect that. So live like a believer because you can affect what other people see in Christ by the way you live. Love goes way beyond our rights 
and our privileges and our positions. Love is, love is what conquers everything. I want you to look up a couple of passages for me. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3. Some of you who are familiar with your Bible, you know this is the love chapter. Well, it's not that kind of love. It's the unconditional type. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 and 3. I just want to read the first three verses. You need to read the whole chapter. It's not very long. It's only 13 verses. But listen to the attitude that Paul is communicating to the Corinthians here. If I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If you've ever been in beginner music class, you know what that sounds like. It's terrible. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. See, without love, it's nothing. Duty is just nothing without love. Turn over to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, verses 20 through 21. The whole book of 1 John is about loving each other because Jesus loved us. And Jeremy quoted uh, 3.16 earlier in the, in the service, how we know what love really is. So then John tells us how to behave in accordance with love. 1 John chapter 4, verses 20 through 21. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. That's pretty clear. For the person who does not love his brother or sister, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And we have this commandment from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother and sister in Christ. He's talking about the church. You obviously should love your siblings, okay? But that's another whole issue, and that's another sermon. Love each other. Love makes all the difference in this. You can work for a, a Christian boss, or you can be a slave working for a Christian slave owner because of love that goes both ways. You've heard the expression, nothing like a job well done. My grandfather used to say that. Nothing like a job well done. I give a lot of credit to my grandparents saying things. And it usually points, when you hear that phrase, it usually points to what you did. God says it points to who you did it with and how you treated them. That's a job well done in God's eyes. Obviously, we want to do good work. We want to be technically accurate and specific. But God tells us that a well-done job mostly points to who we did it with and how we treated them, how we behaved, how we talked to them, how we responded how we acted at 5 o'clock in the afternoon when they piled another stack on your desk or asked you to go do another errand. How did we respond? I know it ain't easy, but it's all because of love that we do it when we have believing bosses especially. So let's talk a little bit about love as we begin to close this out. Selfless. This is, this is the love he's talking about in 1 Corinthians. It's selfless. It's unconditional. God's love is almost incomprehensible for us, but our love, it can be unconditional. It should be unreserved. And because of that, love is the most distinctive trait of the Christian faith. 
No other faith out there has any basis for love. They, they're not based on anything resembling love. They're based on duty. Now, some of them may tell you you're doing those things because you love that God. But if you don't do them, then you don't feel any love back, do you? If I fail, grace is sufficient and love is still there. His love endures forever, remember? It is the most distinctive trait of Christianity. It lies at the heart of all of our theological, doctrinal, and spiritual aspects of our faith. Love is the center of it all. That's why Paul wrote the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 13 about love. It's better than anything. Faith, hope, and love exist, but the greatest of these is love. Without love, without love, Christians are just religious fanatics or hypocritical pretenders. That's all we are without love. If love isn't the root of it, if love doesn't come from the heart and we express the love that Christ expressed for us, we're just fanatics trying to pretend to be right with God. See, love sets our beliefs apart from the world. Only by love would the all-powerful God only because of love did the all-powerful God send his one and only son to die for ungodly humanity. Only love. He saw nothing in us that, that tricked him or convinced him that we were worthy of his love. Only love would have adopted a wretched, sinful human into a holy family and a kingdom of perfection. Only love. Only love can form a group of humans into a unified body who serves God with their whole life. Only love. Only love can do that. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. We love each other because he first loved us. And his love endures forever. So do not let your job, your job, do not, I know it's, it's a four-letter word to some people, do not let your job dim or douse your love for others. And especially for other believers. Don't let that happen. Don't make, let that be your excuse for being a grump at work, okay? Don't let that happen. Love is the difference between worldly religion and eternal life. It is. It's the difference between worldly religion and eternal life. There's no other way under heaven by which we must be saved other than Jesus Christ because he loved us. So nothing else is going to get you right with God. So we, believers in Christ, need to show the world that love. And we can do it, first of all, by loving each other. And when we work for somebody who's a believer, loving them by the way we work for them is a great illustration. Show the world the love of God in the worst of conditions. Because Jesus did. That's what Jesus did. Worst of conditions, he loved. He's hanging on the cross asking God to forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. He loved We need to love with our jobs, with our work. So kind of as a summary, God calls each believer, he calls each of us to live like we are children of God and that we love each other because we're children of God. Every aspect of life, regardless of situations you may find yourself in. I mean, slavery, you know, a terrible situation to be in. But God, Paul is telling him what God's telling him. Testify by your work and love by your actions. Our culture seems very godless right now and crazy 
and, and going off the deep end, if you want to say that. I mean, it seems just unbelievable the, the amount of sin that's out there and the amount of things that are, people are, are disregarding that, that used to normal moral people regarded. But you know what? The behavior, the behavior we want to see, the behavior we want to see in people is called for in us first, right here. We must first live out our eternal life ethics, thinking about everything in terms of what eternity, not so you keep your salvation, that's not ever what I'm saying, but because of your salvation. See, the world rejects our Christian values because they don't see us living them out. They don't see us living like our eternity is secure. We're always worried about something. We're always treating people uh, like we shouldn't treat them. They don't see us living like, I have eternal life. This is just a temporary thing. It's just a trial. A Christless world is a result of a Christless church. I know, I know it's hard to swallow, but that's the truth. A Christless world is a result of a Christless church because we're here as light and salt. We're a beacon on a hill, Jesus said. Sometimes we're, our light is out. We must, be, we must do better at living out our faith wherever we are, in whatever circumstance we are. I know it's not easy, but that's why, that's why we have amazing grace. We are the only displays of Christ that a lot of people will ever see. We're the only ones. I mean, they can walk in the back door today. They'll see me preaching about Jesus, but will they see Jesus? Will they see a display of his love? When they go to work tomorrow, and you go to work with them, will they see Jesus or just someone that's earning a paycheck? See, God left us here to show the world Jesus. It's the only reason a believer's still here. He wants us to show the world our Savior. So our lifestyles and our attitudes must change. We've got to change. If we want the world to follow Jesus. So this is one way you can start. Next time you see your boss or your coworkers, ask them. I know this is a big step. Ask them if they see Jesus in you. Ask them if they know that you're a Christian by the way you have done your work. Because they may know you go to church regularly. They may know you, you, you do other things. But ask them if they know that you believe and trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Ask them if they know that by your actions. I hope you won't be surprised by the answer. But I think it's a good way for us to start thinking about it. Would they know? See, if we're always fighting for our rights or with each other, the world has no interest in Jesus because they can do that with anybody. They need to find some place where we love, where we testify about love in Jesus Christ. So as we come to our pastoral prayer time, I want us to just pray. You can come to the front if you'd like to be better examples of the love God has shown us and how we can show others to Jesus. So let's take some time to pray. We'll have some silent prayer, and then I'll close us out. Let's pray.